Film and Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted best distillery in Washington state by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the best independent bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the best finished bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their La Menta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. Doc Swinson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we are coming at you today with another special bonus episode. Mm, bonus episode. <laughs> wow. That was, that was quite the buildup there, Brad. Hey, you're welcome. How are you doing, man? I have not talked to you in like a week. We just. Yeah. When we're not recording the podcast, we just cut each other off completely, it seems like. Well, honestly, I feel like you text me pretty often. And so sometimes I'll go like two or three days without hearing from you. And I'm like, is the podcast over? Like, did Bob die? I I don't know what's going on. Well, I'm not on death's door, but I have been under the weather the past few days, as you can probably tell from the half octave lower that my voice currently is. Dude, being sick is the best for podcasting. For podcasting, for sure. For, you know, general (laughs) health and well-being, not so much. Yeah, not at all. But I'll tell you what's really helping me right now in my time of need is some cask strength whiskey, because Mm. we have a bottle sitting next to us here from Old Line Spirits. And Brad, we have been working to get them on the show for about a year now. I am so, so excited to have them on uh, for for Veterans Day. You know, Veterans Day is tomorrow, Friday. Uh, This is a veteran owned company. We're going to be talking with the owner, Mark McLaughlin, here in just a moment. But I got to say, even before we bring Mark into things. We get this bottle of whiskey in the mail. It is an American single malt from Maryland that is cask strength. Now, I'm not used to getting single malt from Maryland, and I'm certainly not used to it being cask strength, and I'm certainly not used to it having quite this much color to it. So I pour it out, and I'm like, all right, let's see what we got here. And uh, it's freaking phenomenal, Brad. Like (laughs) Bob, this is an absolutely killer whiskey. Uh, I got it in the mail a few weeks back. And had a buddy over and I was like, well, hey, let's just crack the bottle, man. See what it's like. And we were exact same experience. We were thrown off a little bit by the the where it's from, the fact that it's an American single malt cast straight. Like, what's going on here? And then we drank it. And Bob, this if we were reviewing this as a regular part of our season, it might hit like the 43 to 44 mark. Yeah, like, this is. It's this very, is a like, top-notch whiskey. It's very bourbon-y in, in a lot of ways. Like, it has that rich, dark, oaky character to it that you don't get on scotch very often. And it almost reminds me, like, there's certain bourbons that call themselves, like, a cigar blend. It has that sort of, yeah. like, dark, smoky yeah. cigar thing going on to it. Uh, I, I'm I'm vamping at this point because Mark is sitting over here waiting for us to, to call on him as we just, you know, extol the virtues of this whiskey. Mark McLaughlin, welcome into the Film and Whiskey podcast. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for this whiskey. 
Well, General, thank you so much. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you uh, received it. I'm glad you're enjoying it. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about the company itself, because uh, I've been reading through the, the history on your website, and it seems like you guys have spanned and, and trekked across the whole continent as you set this thing up. I'm seeing things about Washington. I'm seeing things about Ohio. I'm seeing things about Maryland. So give us the, you know, the minute long version of the history of this company. By all means, yeah, it's, it's an unusual start. Uh, so, you know, Arch, my business partner, Arch Watkins, Arch and I, you know, were friends from the Navy. We used to fly together. We were both the uh, weapons systems uh, operators, navigators on uh, naval uh, naval aviation jets, you know, carrier base. That's how we met and became buddies. And then, uh, you know, left the Navy, pursued civilian careers. Neither one of us was really that enthused with what we were doing on the civilian side. So we decided, hey, why not make whiskey? And we thought, you know, we'll we'll make whiskey, we'll make bourbon, we'll make rye, we'll start something from scratch. Uh, we'll jump into this the way so many others uh, have in the past 10 years. And we stumbled across an opportunity uh, to actually apprentice and learn how to make whiskey from two gentlemen on the West Coast uh, near Seattle um, named Bob Stilnovich and Jim Caudill. And they had a very, very, very small distillery called Golden Distillery. And they were making this just killer American single malt whiskey. And they were looking to Passed the torch because uh, Jim, unfortunately, was terminally ill, and and you know what had started off as a, you know, two guys in their retirement years, you know, making whiskey, you know, make a little money, but really for fun, became this chore. So they were looking to pass it on to. But they didn't want it to go away, right? They wanted this thing to continue. You know, we're vets, they're vets. We liked them, they liked us. Ultimately, we moved out there, lived in the guest house, you know, learned how to make the whiskey, bought the thing, and then you know relocated it back to Baltimore. Um, and then, you know, in the interim, we we were getting set up in Baltimore. We started producing whiskey with Middle West Spirits in Columbus, Ohio. Let's those go. Guys, oh, they're awesome. Yeah. And those guys allowed us to be extremely, and they still do, allow us to be extremely hands-on. It's our grain, our yeast, our process. Uh, so it's, you know, almost like gypsy distilling in the sense that they let us go out there and be very, very involved. And they've yeah. been enormously beneficial to us. And we still work with them to this day. So it's been that's the shortest answer I can give you. Uh, it's been a, a long journey, but, uh, you know, and it's kind of a long, strange trip, if you will. But we couldn't be happier with where it brought us. Well, I got to say, first of all, the fact that this bottle says distilled in Ohio on it just makes my heart mm. warm. But um, in addition to that, you know, I want to go in a little bit on what you guys are up to now, because it's not just this cask strength single malt that you guys are producing. You're making rums as well, uh, and you have some variations within this world of single malt. So what are some of your other offerings besides just this bottle that we have today? Uh, yeah, so that what you have, the cask strength is uh, one of our two flagship offerings that's kind of sister offering is the um, the 86 proof expression of that same product. So those were kind of the the, the two flagships, if you will. And uh, to your point, uh, we do other things. We do we do import rum from the Dominican Republic. It's our own blend of barrel-aged rum. It's wonderful. We do that in a pretty limited amount. Um, so it's an important part of our business, but it's a very, very small, limited part. Um, really, what we focus on is, is the single malt world. And uh, in addition to what you have there, uh, we've actually just started to release just a little bit of peated malt. Um, so just like the whiskey you're drinking right now, which is you, I, you know, I heard you mention, you know, that, that oak forward character is really drawing you in. We love that. You know, we love that American style oak forward aging. And we do that with our peated as well, which does differentiate it very much from a typical, you know, Isla Scotch, for example. Um, we do a number of barrel finishes. Uh, the most notable ones would say Oloroso, Sherry, Madeira, mm. um, and Tawny Port. And we do other ones too, but those are the ones that have really kind of started to take off. 
And uh, yeah, really just, you know, and then we've experimented with, we've done vatted malts, um, you know, uh, we've done a bottled and bonds um, offering that we did here in Baltimore. So yeah, lots of cool stuff that that's coming out. One thing we're not doing and is bourbon and rye. And we absolutely love bourbon and rye. Uh, just absolutely, you know, I will, I will, my cabinet's always full of a wide range of bourbons, rye and scotches. Um, but we're not doing that because this is the path we've chosen and, and we're just, you know, we want to be malt guys. That's, you know, as far as what we make. So that's just, uh, we're focused largely on that. Well, and what is it that about malt specifically that drew you in? You know, obviously it's a little bit of a smaller market here in the U.S., uh, especially for American single malts. So, so what, what was it that made you guys, you know what we want to do? We're going to make American single malts. So it's funny, I, I, you know, the first thing that drew us in was just the opportunity because, you know, when I quit my, I was an investment banker for about two years in between the Navy and this, and the way we met Bob and Jim, the guys that we ended up, you know, uh, apprenticing under and, and buying their business was at a distilling conference that was in Seattle. I was, you know, trying to start a distillery. I flew out there for the conference. I met Bob, one of the owners of that business, and he had come down uh, from about 90 minutes north where he lived. and. Uh, he had come down because you know he knew he had decided to sell the business and he knew that he'd find a lot of people like me who were newcomers who may be interested in in the opportunity so when i met bob and he said he was making american single malt i had never heard of an american single malt in my life this is 2014 uh, it was completely new to me so at first to be honest i was a little bit taken aback like oh man i kind of had my heart set on bourbon and rye and then uh you know bob said hey why don't you fly out a couple weeks from now come visit the place you know, just see what you think. And I came out and prior to that, he had shipped me some whiskey, you know, illegally, but whatever. And, uh, and like you did, you pop that bottle open. It's like, holy smokes, like there's something here. Mm. And where I've kind of, what I love about it for me, at least is I love that, especially the profile that we're doing at Old Line, you know, we're doing very much embracing the, you know, the new world aging, the, the number four char virgin oak, you know, it's definitively a malt, right? It's not a bourbon, but it's definitively an American malt. And other other American distilleries are approaching a little bit more from an old world perspective. And there's yep. some people doing amazing, a great examples like Virginia Distilling Company. They're making great whiskeys, but they're just doing it in a very different approach than we are, which is beautiful. So my point, I guess, is that um, what I love about what we do at Old Line is that I think it delivers all the things that a bourbon drinker wants in a very, very, very different vehicle. So it's, you know, it's just like, hey, all, you know, the, the, the spicy notes, you know, the, um, baking spices, the caramel, the vanilla, you know, all you know, this wonderful nutty character, things like that. You know, those things are there. They're just delivered almost like, you know, when you look at the DJ booth, you know, different levers are high or low, the mixing table, whatever you call it, you yeah. know, it's like, it's like the same things just delivered in a very, very different way. And that's, that's really fun to me. I think it's a great way to put it. And I, I'm glad that you're, you're not offended by me saying that it was a very bourbon-y malt earlier. And and I guess for the nerds in the audience, can you go in a little bit more on like the aging process? And it sounds like you guys are using new charred oak barrels, not used ones like they would in, in Scotland. Uh, and with that number four char, is that all correct? That is all correct. Yes, exactly. So, um, so you know, up until the whiskey goes into the barrel, uh, the process, you could say, is, is not unlike like a Highland uh, single malt. So we use, you know, all non-peated malt with the exception of, we had that one peated offering that's very limited, but, you know, 99% of what we do is all non-peated malt. But generally speaking, we're, you know, the distillate coming off the still would uh, resemble in many ways, you know, some Highland single malt scotches, but then that aging process to your point, 
uh, we're doing everything in, in mostly number four char, some number three char, but virgin oak. Mm. And uh, you, you hit the nail on the head as far as calling it kind of a bourbony single malt. Uh, you know, our target consumer, frankly, as far as early adopter, is more a bourbon drinker than a Scotch drinker. And that's not to say that Scotch drinkers don't love it. It's just that I think that the, what we deliver uh, draws in a lot of bourbon drinkers mm-hmm. who didn't think that they liked malt whiskey. And what we found is that they probably just haven't been exposed to the right malts. Um, cause as you guys know, you guys are scotch guys, like, you know, there's a whole wide range of single malt scotches and, you know, to say, you know, I don't like scotch based on one or two experiences is really limiting because there's, you know, the difference between, you know, a really smoky, peaty, earthy Isla and, you know, a really fruity, uh, you know, kind of lighter Glenmo, like it's, it couldn't be farther apart. Right. And this is a world in between. So at any rate, um, the, the reference to being a bourbon drinker's malt is something that we embrace. Yeah, I mean, that's something we we constantly talk about is that in the same way that there's a vast amount of difference between a any amount of the bourbon products that we drink, people need to get into scotch, man. There, like there is so many beautiful whiskeys from around the world that that people aren't trying. I mean, heck, Bob and I had uh, the Pandaren at the start of last season, I believe, which is a Welsh single yeah. malt that is incredible they're like they're putting out such good stuff it's agreed uh pandaren's a great example and another example uh do you guys know milk and honey out of israel i've heard of it but we haven't tried it on the show before check them out and uh i'll i'll, I'll be you know we'll connect offline and i'll introduce you to somebody who may be able to um you know guide you along oh, there. awesome uh they're, they're doing things that are you know three years old that to me you know taste like they've been aging a lot longer than that. There's really well-made, well-made malts and they're exciting and different. I mean, is everyone my cup of tea? No, but that's cool. They're exploring different ways, but man, when they hit, they hit. And um, I think to your point, yeah, there's, you know, there's just a lot of great world whiskeys. And then within Scotland, I think Scotland does get overlooked sometimes by a lot of American consumers, Mm -hmm. because again, they have one or two experiences with something that wasn't really what they wasn't really for them. And, but I think that's just kind of very a limiting view because there is such a wide range of what's available there. Well, I feel like to your point though, there's something about malt as a grain and obviously I'm not a distiller. So I'm asking you though, like we've heard it time and time again from people who distill malt whiskeys that it, it seems like there's more of a playground there that you can go more directions with it that or, or I guess that there's a, a variety of ways that it can come out in the end, whether or not you intend that. But like, you know, with corn, it, you have to with with bourbons, you have to add like a, a rye spice or wheat, like something to round it out to make it not just taste like sweet corn. And with rye, you know, like you've you've got your ninety five five rise, your hundred percent rise, and then basically just like your fifty one percent rise. But there's something about malt that it seems like you can go a ton of different directions with it and really play with the flavor profile, just depending on you know what kind of process you use for malting it and things like that. One hundred percent. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't say it better myself. So that, that to the, you know, for those of you listening who maybe aren't as familiar with what malted barley really means, uh, but to Bob's point, the you know malted barley—it's this grain barley that you know gets harvested before it germinates. And I'll try to keep this as brief as I can. But if you imagine if that grain was left to just you know fall off the plant in the fields, and you know it's got a really thick protein husk and a really dry kind of starchy interior. Uh, low moisture content and starchy, but not sugary. And what that's designed to do is survive the winter. And then when the rain comes and it warms up in the spring, you know, natural process during germination occurs where these, you know, enzymes get released that are natural to the grain and break down those starches into sugar. And that sugar is what 
you know, the, the, you know, the plant uses to sprout, it's like the energy to sprout before it can start using photosynthesis to really start creating its own food. So all that is to say that when you malt a grain, as you guys know, but just for the listeners who may not, you know, you're tricking that process. The, the, the malt house, the place that does this, they'll, they'll soak the grain, they'll trick it into thinking it's time to sprout, and then they'll dry it out. And the way that's done creates a dramatically different flavor within that grain. So, so look, one good example is we use two types of malted barley, which can be confusing to some people because people think single malt, wait, shouldn't there only be one type? You know, the single and single malt uh, refers to being produced at one distillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got to be all malted barley, but there's different types of malted barley that we can use. So we use two types. And one of them is called a uh, Copeland uh, two-row pale malt, premium pale malt. And if you were to take that grain before we, you know, mill it up and, and mash it, it'll taste like uh, grape nut cereal. So think mm. mildly sweet, but a little more like starchy and grainy, uh, you know, taste. it'll taste like, you know, grain. Um, the other one we use when they dry it out in the malting house, um, they dry it at a high temperature and it starts to caramelize the, some of those sugars that have started to form. And it gets darker, and that, that one we call a C120, which is uh, C stands for crystal, but you can call it a deep kiln malt, deep roast malt. And if you were to take a bite of that grain, it tastes like raisin bran flakes. It's the exact same grain before they start, but the way it was processed in that malt house gives us two dramatically different flavors. So that, you know, exactly to your point earlier, you know, corn tastes like corn, right? Yeah, there's variations of different types, and I'm not trying to downplay it, but it is what it is, right? It's a, it's a pretty narrow flavor band, whereas yeah. malt, you can get a you can start off already, which is such a wildly different, um, you know, flavor profile, even before you distill it. Well, Mark, I, I have to say you are the first person. Uh, I'm 98 percent sure the first person in the history of the Film and Whiskey podcast to use the word photosynthesis. So nice. I, I, oh, man, I, go, I got a whole dictionary here that I'm going to go through. <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I think you might be then the smartest person ever to appear on the podcast. <laughs> My GPA in college would suggest otherwise, but I'll take the compliment. <laughs> well, I, man, I thank you for the lesson on, on, the, on the grains because I, I think that there's so much there to learn. There, there's so much to grow and understand of like what goes into the glass that you're drinking. And it honestly kind of made me think about, I was thinking about how you being a Navy pilot, uh, obviously a lot went into the making of Top Gun Maverick. They they literally <laughs> blasted it everywhere. Like you couldn't go online in the month or two leading up to that movie without seeing like, watch the documentary of the real Navy pilots who made Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> this is so Brad's way. I was going to say, this is Brad's way of asking you, what do you think of Top Gun Maverick? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I hate to say it, gentlemen. Um, I have not seen it yet. It's crazy. I need to. And then, you know, at first I was like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll wait till the theaters aren't too crowded. I don't, you know, I'm going to no rush. And then it just kind of like life overtook it. And then I told my wife, I'm like, oh, we'll go see it together. And like, that was stupid because we never do things together because we have three kids <laughs> and two businesses. So, like, you know, so now I'm in this kind of, you know, I guess I'm waiting for it to be available and just rent it on, at home. But uh, I'm excited to see it. Um, and it will be fun uh, to see it. I, you know, I've seen the first one, obviously, the, the first one from the 80s was one of the first things that got me interested in naval aviation, like so many other people. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it, it's a documented thing. And and I know that, like, the Navy was involved in the making of that movie. Like, the, the military is always involved in the, in the making of movies like that. But recruitment spiked like crazy after that movie came out because everyone everybody wanted to go to Top Gun. Everybody wanted to be the next Maverick. 
So, I mean, like you coming on the tail end of that and that inspiring you to go into the Navy in some ways, like when you look back on the first Top Gun, like how does it hold up to you from an actual like piloting standpoint? Well, you know, there's a couple of ways to answer that. I'd say that, you know, I'll start first, like culturally, what, what they, they did what every kind of movie does, right? You know, they'll, they'll take something like you watch a cop movie, like, okay, yeah, there's some cop behaviors and things, but it's probably pretty exaggerated, right? Like, you know, and same thing with this, like, you know, the, yeah, we're a competitive bunch, you know, and, and there's a, a lot of that is real, but really there's actually way more collaboration than competition mm -hmm. in naval aviation. So like, yeah, you're competing, you know, y'all, everybody wants to be, you know, the best at what they do, but no one's out there trying to like knock the other guy down. You know what I mean? So like they, they kind of amped that up a bit, um, but that's a movie. I get it. Uh, the flying, I'd say that, you know, it's just, when I watched it as a kid, I just was, I was enthralled. And then, you know, after going through, you know, Navy flight school and, you know, flying for a while, like you start, you watch it again. You're like, wow, like what, what's actually happening in that scene couldn't be farther from what they're saying is happening. Like, you know, you know, there's no way this guy could be trying to shoot him with guns. He's about four feet away. It's not going to go well for anybody, you know, on either party. Yeah. So, um, but it's, uh, it's fun. You know, it's, I still watch it and enjoy it. And, you know, my favorite part of that movie hands down is the first, you know, the intro, the first like two, three minutes in the flight deck. Um, oh yeah. Like, I would, you could put that on loop and I wouldn't get sick of it. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that they recreate that as the opening to the new Top Gun too. So you're going to get like, you know, the, oh, the nice. 4K version of that when you watch the new one. I can't wait be the flight that, you know, flying in the, the carrier and you know, the nighttime stuff wasn't, wasn't always the most pleasant, but the daytime, uh, you could, I'd do that for, for free. I, I loved it. Is there a movie when you think about like all of the fighter pilot movies out there, is there one that sticks out to you as being the most egregiously wrong of all of them. Oh boy. You know, I, I, this one I've only seen once or twice, maybe like, and this has probably been three decades since I've seen it, but the one that was an iron Eagle was pretty hard to watch. Oh, I don't know if I know that one. Who's uh, you, you, you're, you're, you're better off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell you one, the one that I think I'm going to, I'm going to answer a different question. I hope you don't mind. Is that the one that I think was the biggest missed opportunity was the flight of the intruder uh, because it, the story, it's, if you guys aren't familiar, it's, um, it was a Danny Glover was in it and, uh, it was in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties was Vietnam, actually a six intruders, which was a, you know, my plane that I, I flew was a variant of that. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, big, ugly round nose jet. And it's just, uh, it was a great story. The book was really good. And then they just kind of tried to do it. They made it a little too cheesy and it just became like such a wonderful story that they just completely dorked up in my opinion. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, and I love the old ones. I love the old, you know, Battle of Midway and those things. You know, I, I can't get enough of those old World War II movies. I remember there was a movie that that Clint Eastwood did in the early '80s called Firefox. Did you ever see that movie? That's when he goes to Russia and like yes, steals the steals a jet that like reads your thoughts. Right? I don't remember a damn thing about that movie except for the fact that like I have never seen faker green screen. <laughs> like in my whole life, and, you know, at that point, Eastwood's like 58 years old. So like just getting him in the cockpit, like he looks really uncomfortable. And then everything behind him is just so fake. But I guess what I'm really trying to get at here is I need you to give me like a one to 10 on the plausibility scale of the scene in Independence Day where Will Smith is chasing the alien through like the Grand Canyon in his fighter jet. You know, I, it's been a while since I've seen that. I will say that 
just by the way you kind of described it, I'm guessing plausibility is kind of low from what my memory nah, is. But come I, on. But I, but I will say, <laughs> I'll tell you, there's a flying, I will say this, that uh, we, a lot of us, you know, have, and, and I'm sure they still do, I know they still do, train um, for low-level flying. So, you, we, you know, we'll fly through things like canyons. Like Washington State has some great routes that you're flying basically below the canyon walls. So, there, that is... I'm guessing they probably uh, exaggerated how tight the plane could turn without pulling the wings off. But, uh, but uh, you know, flying down low in canyons and things like that. Now you, it's, it's certainly, it's more of a tactic for like, uh, like low altitude ingress into a target, try to below radar kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, flying, flying low and, and maneuvering low is very common. And once you do it often with more than one airplane, so you'll do two or four airplanes together that are, you know, maneuvering down low it's pretty it's pretty fun well especially when the fate of mankind is at stake like you know well that's how i go about my uh, entire day i assume that you know <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the way it is you know it's it's gotta always be prepared all right before we let you out of here i need your opinion on one more movie and I, i'm gonna use you to settle a debate here oh boy so we're in the middle of a mini series of rob reiner movies and you know we kind of try to line things up a little bit with national holidays so it just kind of worked out that on halloween we had uh, Misery, his movie Misery with James Caan and, and Kathy Bates. Yep. And so it was like, oh, that's kind of spooky. We'll do that for Halloween. And then we had The Princess Bride and A Few Good Men. And I said, well, let's line up A Few Good Men with The Week of Veterans Day because it's, you know, it's a story about the Navy. And Brad gave me so much on the episode about A Few Good Men because he's like, this is clearly a movie where the writer Aaron Sorkin is just trying to like on the authority of the you know the u.s military and i said i have a completely different take on this i i feel like this is an inspiring story of tom cruise learning what it means to become an officer in the united states military and like embracing the integrity that an officer should truly have and so we went at it a little bit about like is this a a polemic against the military or is this you know standing up for what the military should really be and darn it, if A Few Good Men isn't a movie that I can watch a hundred times in a row. And <laughs> That's I don't, so good. I don't mean to put you on the spot here because I don't know how long it's been since you've seen it. But when you think back on that movie, like, what's your read on that film? You know, that's a, I've never thought of it in those terms. But my read would be, uh, I think I would probably agree. Sorry, Brad. I think I'd probably agree more with you, Bob. And mm. then I think that ultimately it was, you know, highlighting probably more of the good than the bad in the military. I think there obviously is that element of how, you know, this kind of systemic, you know, uh, problem in, in the movie where, you know, people were, you know, this kid was abused and, and murdered and it was covered up and blah, blah, blah. But I think that, um, yeah, I, I think overall, I think that they were trying to show, um, you know, the positives of, of a, to your point, him, you know, learning as this kind of young attorney harvard what if he's a harvard grad right and wasn't taking his time in the navy very seriously and skating his way through because his dad had done the same thing and you know that's kind of learning point of yes you know um this is a very serious business and and people you know and a lot's at stake and i think that his realization of kind of the uh the kind of gravity of what goes with his position was was i think a good part of the movie so i don't know if i answered that really but i'd say that i think it, it more i lean more towards your view bob um but uh, but I think it also does point out, you know, hey, nothing's perfect and the military is not perfect. And 
there are certain cultural things that, you know, are healthy, just like any organization. And, and those exist in the military, just like anywhere else. And that's part of the movie, too. Well, I mean, you're entitled to your opinion, Mark, but I, I don't know if you're really a reliable source on the military. So uh, we're just going to throw that opinion out. Uh, this is, this is going to become uh, you're going to yeah, some real character assassination. Yeah. Here, like. <laughs> oh, man, Mark, we're so thankful that you've joined us today. I am curious. Uh, I was reading about some of the philanthropic things that you guys do as a veteran-owned company. Can you can you quickly hit on some of those things and yeah. highlight anything that's coming up for you guys that you want to you want to promote? Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, so, a couple of things to your point. We do, um, you know, as a company, we try to support a lot of um, philanthropic causes, and the ones that are nearest and dearest to to us, you know, tend to to resonate with our tend to um, revolve around you know military service members and things like that. The biggest one we do is we work with an organization called Fisher House Foundation, which uh, they give it like Ronald McDonald House for veterans. Um, so when, you know, ill or wounded uh, service members um, are being treated at you know VA hospitals or at base hospitals, the Fisher House, you know, the family can stay there for free for the duration of the treatment. So right now we're doing in the markets that we're in, which is Maryland, D.C., Delaware, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts and Colorado. Uh, accounts that take in, you know, a six case stack of old line. We have this whole case sleeve we give them, and we promote that five dollars from every bottle will be donated by old line to to Fisher House. So we love it. It's the second year doing it. We love it. They're just a great organization. Um, we also work with the Tailhook Education Foundation, which helps provide college scholarships to uh, kids of um, of uh, uh, fallen uh, naval aviation and Marine Corps aviation. You know whether they were pilots, navigators, or maintenance personnel. So those are the two that we work with the closest. And yeah, we feel really good about that. So thank you for, for bringing that up. And then as far as what's coming out, uh, for those of you who are in those markets I just mentioned, uh, keep an eye out for our uh, uh, Oloroso Sherry finish. That just won uh, Best American Single Malt Whiskey from Fred Minnick's Ascot Awards wow. uh, a couple months ago. And that'll be on the shelves in those markets in November and only limited amount. But if you go to our website, you know, oldlinespirits.com, we have a store locator and uh, we do our best to indicate where different products are. So people can hopefully find a bottle if they'd like. Well, Mark, this has been just a fantastic conversation. It's always it makes our job so much easier when the person that we're interviewing is as charismatic as you are. And uh, I, I don't have enough positive things to say about the company, about the whiskey. Uh, so just for me and Brad, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, gentlemen, so much. Uh, this is a blast. You know, and since I have just a, a few seconds left, uh, I'm going to I'm going to put you guys in the spot here. And uh, I forget which which gentleman uh, thinks that Jaws was uh, said that uh, Jurassic Park was a better movie than Jaws. And I just got to say, when I heard that on uh, on your uh, Highland Park 12 uh, podcast, I uh, like I said, I, I, I might oh, drop. Come on, man. All right, so you got you got one dig in against Brad and one against me. So I guess there we go. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, everybody. This has been Mark McLaughlin from Old Line Spirits. We'll be back on Monday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 